0: We are starting a, uh, we started a series called Behold, and it was based around this sentence. Um, In a season that we are often exposed to Jesus, we're often um, aware of his presence, be it you see a nativity scene and there's the baby in there, or you see a star on the top of a Christmas tree. Actually, and, and this is at best, but culture is pretty good at making us aware of Christmas. We want to, instead of being aware of Christmas or being aware of Jesus, we want to behold him. And to be, be, to be aware and to behold something are very different. They have different engagement levels. And so um, this season, we've said we want to do more than just be aware of Jesus. We want to do more than just buy the Jesus is the reason for the season embroidered pillow that we sell at our mom's house. We want more than that. We want more engagement than that. We want to actually behold Jesus. And so in Luke 2... Uh, verse ten to eleven, it, the angels come to these shepherds and they say, "Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all people, for there is born to you this day in the city of David uh, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." And the implication um, in in the Greek that word "behold" is uh, to be sure to see. So, basically the angels are basically coming to these shepherds and saying. You know, this is amazing. I know you've never seen an angel before. Don't miss the baby. Don't, don't, you've got, make sure that you see the baby. I want, I want you, I know this is kind of new. You've never seen like an angel in the middle of these fields, but be sure to make sure that you see the baby. And so that's the essence of behold is don't miss this. And what's crazy is this is not the first time that someone has told men to be on the lookout for a baby. Even 700 years before that, the prophet Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, started writing about one day there would come one that was a baby. And the first time that he makes mention of this, 700 years before Jesus ever was born, Isaiah gave this prophetic word. It's in Isaiah 7:14. says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means... God with us and that was all of our christmas series last year which i know you remember because you remember everything i preach every week but we talked about how god was with us and so isaiah seven fourteen quoted then in matthew 1 23 that jesus is to be called emmanuel so isaiah 7 told us what this god would do that he would be with us and then two chapters later in isaiah 9 there's another reference to the messiah that would come as a child And that's the verse that we've been in for all of December. It says, for us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so Isaiah 7 told us what this God would do. Isaiah 9 told us who this God would be. And so in the same way that the shepherds were given instructions, hey, this is how you find Jesus, this is what to look for, This manger, this kind of wrap, there's going to be a mother and a father. This is what you're looking for when you find the baby. In the same way, 700 years before, Isaiah did the same thing for us and said, this is what you're to look for. When you're looking for Jesus, this is what he's going to look like. He's going to be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. And so this Christmas, the essence of beholding is we want to know not just what Jesus did, but who he is. And can we behold him a little bit more this season than we've ever done before? So... The context of Isaiah 9, because I think it's important to understand, especially today, talking about the phrase mighty God, is um, that Isaiah was writing to God's people. Now, God's people were, were a kingdom. They were called Israel, right? And that was, they were delivered from the promised land in Exodus. And, um, and we read about God's people. But at this point, the kingdom has been actually divided. And so it's a northern kingdom, which is called Israel. So that's confusing. And then there's the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And so that's who Isaiah's writing to at this point. He's writing to Judah. And the, the context is, at this point, they've been a people that have been a little flippant in being faithful to God. They've been faithful, this king was, now this king wasn't. No, we really want to worship Yahweh. Actually, these idols look good. And so they've gone back and forth. And at the time, uh, their, their own brothers and sisters, Israel, are pressuring and attacking them. There's a threat, and we have a picture of a map, I think. There's a, the threat. Judah is all the way down there in the very bottom, the green. Israel is attacking them from the north. Syria is also threatening to attack them. And then the world power of the time, Assyria, uh, they were also in the mix of um, possibly they were going to come down to Judah. All three of these, really bad news for Judah. And so the context of Isaiah 9:6 is actually not really Christmas It's that Isaiah's giving a prophetic word of hope to a people that are being attacked on all sides. And so the feeling that would have been in Judah at this time would have been that they would have felt powerless, that they had, uh, and they were afraid of multiple threats that were coming in, and their enemies seemed to be growing in strength with, with each and every day. And what was even worse, the worst part of this, was that Judah didn't know if God was for them, If he was against them, if he had given up on them, if he had abandoned them, they didn't know exactly where they stood with the Lord. And so before we actually get to Isaiah 9, I, as as I was studying, I was re-engaged with this, and then as I was praying, I was like, man, that might be, that might be a little bit where I am, and maybe that's where you are. Um, I want to actually take a moment, and I want to invite you to remember, is there an area of your life right now that feels a little bit like that? Is there an area of your life that feels a little bit hopeless or said, um, and I'll ask this a few different times, um, where are things not as they should be? Where does it feel like some of your ability to change a situation is slipping? Where does it feel like the enemies are starting to close in? Because as I was getting reacquainted with what was actually going on in Isaiah 9, I was um, almost like it leapt out at me, and maybe this is just for me of like, man, there seems to be some situations or a situation in my life that I'm like, it doesn't matter what I do. I just feel like I'm always losing. That's the context which Isaiah wrote this verse. And so I want to remember that area as we move on through this. So in Isaiah 8, God gives a really encouraging word because 8 and 9 go together. And he says, look, um, Israel, they're they're not going to conquer you. He says, Syria, they're not going to attack you. Assyria is also not going to attack you. Actually, I'm going to cause Assyria to take on Syria and Israel. I'm going to turn your enemies against one another. And then in Isaiah 9, 1, this is one of the most incredible prophecies in the Old Testament, in my opinion. He turns a corner and he starts to give some hope specifically to Judah. And he says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress, In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. Incredible prophecy. Incredible. And what was actually happening here was crazy. And so in order to figure it out, that must mean that relevance is is coming. But it's coming on December 22nd when I unpack this. So we have a Christmas service here at 7 p.m. And when I talk about the Prince of Peace, I'm going to dig into, I think, one of my favorite prophecies, which is this, Isaiah 9.1 where God starts to call out a couple of tribes, and he says, actually, you're going to be honored among the nations. So, relevance is coming, but it's coming December 22nd. But this is the beginning. Isaiah 9:1 is the beginning of God giving some hope. And he goes on, and if you read verse 2 and 3 and 4, God starts to say things like, a light has dawned, you have increased their, you have increased, um, their joy. Isaiah says that to them. And then tucked in the midst of this hopeful prophecy is the verse that we've kind of camped on. The second sighting of a baby that was supposed to represent God's presence. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, a little bit more context, then we're going to get to um, some more relevance. But the context around this is in Hebrew, there is no punctuation, there is no um, exclamation point. So the way that you emphasize something is you repeat it. And so Isaiah is using a bit of a Hebrew literary device by saying the same thing twice— But he doesn't exactly say the same thing. So he repeats himself, but he says it in two different ways, which is really, really important. First, he says, a child is born. And this is significant because as they were hoping for the Messiah, the Messiah could have been an angel. It could have been God that came down in God's form. But Isaiah says, no, it's going to be different than that. Nobody would have saw a baby coming nobody would have saw flesh coming and in order for jesus to be our high priest our advocate our empathizer he had to also be born as a man this would have changed what they were looking for they would have assumed that god would have come down in god form but isaiah says no 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 a child has to be born because the messiah has to be human and then he says but also a son is given Because again, the Messiah could have been an angel, it could have been a sinless man. But Isaiah says, no, it's not going to be that way, because in order for Jesus to have qualified to be our Savior, he had to be God. And so he had to be given. There was no beginning to Jesus. He wasn't started, because birth signifies a start to something, but instead a son, the son was given from eternity into eternity. So there's a deeply like crazy theological statement here that the son had to be given because the Messiah had to be God. Now don't do the math on this, but that makes Jesus 100% man and 100% God. It's the craziness of 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah predicted that in a way. Uh, Commentator David Guzik says, if Jesus were not fully man, he could not stand in the place of sinful man and be a substitute for the punishment man deserves. But if he were not fully God, his sacrifice would be insug- uh, insufficient. Jesus had to be man, and Jesus had to be God. A child had to be born, and the son had to be given. All of this 700 years before Jesus ever was born. Now let's stop, and let's just acknowledge that the Bible's awesome. Come on. The wor- I, mean, and, and it's pr- I mean, there's manuscripts that are dated that this was written 700 years B.C., roughly, Before Jesus was born. Guys, the Bible can be trusted. And the Bible is awesome. And Isaiah gives that prophetic word. And then he says, and he will be called, which is a very Jewish way of saying, here's the nature of the Messiah that's coming. One, he's going to be a wonderful counselor. Megan talked about that last week. And then finally, it says that he's going to be a mighty God. So everything that I've said thus far has just been intro. Cancel lunch. (laughs) Then he calls him a mighty God. And it's at that moment that I think the narrative might have shifted because they were probably, even in the midst of reading what they just read about the son that was given, they were probably expecting a man. And Isaiah says, no, 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 this is going to be a God. And it would have shifted from probably this wonderful counseling king to now this all-powerful baby. And so Jesus, the Messiah is a wonderful counselor so that means that his voice can be trusted in impossible situations but he is also a mighty god which means that impossible situations are actually never impossible for him Here's my big point this morning This is the reminder that I've needed There is a mighty God in our midst There is there's a mighty God in our midst. And if you don't believe me, you should ask the leper in Mark 1 that got healed of his disease, or the wedding host in John 2 that embarrassingly ran out of wine, or the man with the withered hand in Mark 3 that, when an instant, was healed, or you should talk to Satan in Luke 4. Actually, don't talk to Satan, but you could talk to Satan in Luke 4 and say, How did the temptation of Jesus go? Or you could talk to the people that had his shadow fall, Peter's shadow fall on them in Acts 5, or you could talk to the elders that are sitting around the throne in Revelation 6. There's a mighty God in our midst. But you don't have to go back to Bible times. You could talk to people in this room. You could talk to Ben that asked for a prayer language and got it. You could talk to Catherine that thought that she would never be a mom. You could talk to Robin who didn't think that she was going to be able to tithe. She couldn't afford that. You could talk to Rob that thought his career was going to be selling drugs. You could talk to Abigail that didn't think that Jesus was worth it. You could talk to Anne that thought drinking was her destiny. You could talk to me because I thought I was destined to boredom in following Jesus. But guys, there is a mighty God in our midst. And he actually came to earth. Let's not miss him this season. What does it look like for us to behold Jesus and call him mighty God? Where are there things in your life that are not as they should be? And I wonder if God, the mighty one, has something to say about that. Now, the, the bread and butter of what I love to do is now we would dig into um, what it means and all the references to God being mighty in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But I need, sometimes I get to preach a message from a source of strength. This one I'm preaching from a place of like, I've missed this for the last year. And, um, and I don't need to be convinced theologically, and I'm just going to guess most of us don't need to be convinced that Jesus, that our God is mighty. Very rarely do I find myself asking, man, I wonder if God even could blank. Often what I find is, will God Blank. Or actually the more common one is, man, I totally forgot that God could help me with blank. And so um, this season, I want to remind myself that God is mighty among us. And so again, I want to ask, but I want to ask it with a little bit more hope now. where Where are things in your life not as they should be? whether it's a consequence of your own choices or it's just something that's happening on the outside, where can you identify and empathize with the Judah in this situation and say, man, things are not as they should be. And it's so basic, but there's a mighty God in your midst. And that actually changes everything. There is a God that when he looks at impossible situations, he sees situations. He doesn't see them the same way that we do. There is a mighty God in our midst. And if it's so basic, I just wonder what would change in your life? What would change in my life if I actually believed that there was a mighty God in my midst? It changed a guy named Martin Luther's life, and a lot of us have probably heard of Martin Luther. In 1517, he nailed um, his 95 critiques or theses onto a church, 1517, and it was against the Catholic Church, and he said, this is what's going wrong, and it actually caused him to now be on the run because I mean, he's excommunicated from the only community that he'd ever known. And in 1522, he's on the run. There he is. Good-looking guy, right? Yeah. Very smart. And he's on the run from the Catholic Church. And this is crazy, and this had to hurt more than even that. The reformation that he had now started, this baby reformation with other reformers, now were starting to critique and come after him. So he's getting attacked on this side, and he's getting attacked on that side, and it says, uh, he says that he entered a season of depression where he he felt like he was beset on all sides. Ten years after he nailed this to the wall, and he's on the run and excommunicated from church, the black plague hits Wittenberg, and uh, it infects his son and his wife, and uh, they both eventually recovered, but his five-month-old daughter did not, and she died. And it's at that moment, beset on all sides, excommunicated, attacked from within, attacked from outside, losing his daughter, it's at that moment that he wrote a hymn that you might have sung if you grew up in uh, an older, more traditional church. And it starts like this. This is the moment that he wrote these words. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. He goes on to say, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. This is Luther. Guys, this is Martin Luther. He's brilliant, the reformer. And in his hardest moment of life, in the brilliance of all of his theology, it leads him to say one phrase at the beginning, a mighty fortress is our God. And, and he's humbly, and no offense, he's smarter than all of us. I mean, that guy, he he knew, he knew so much, and all of his theology led him simply to remind his soul, a mighty fortress is our God. In the midst of the worst moment of his life, he just needed to remind himself that there was a mighty God in his midst. So where are things not as they should be? Because here's what I felt like the Lord reminded me. God doesn't need my strength. He has plenty of that. But he does ask for my weakness because he has none And so god doesn't need our strength. He needs and he wants our weakness And so I want to take a moment because I want this to actually change our monday through saturday I want to take a moment and I want you to remind yourself just like martin luther did Where has god been faithful in the past? Where has god shown himself mighty? And so take a moment, I want you to stir your faith again, and I want you to remind yourself, when did God come through when it didn't look like that was possible? So take a moment, and I want you to think about that. Now, full of faith, I want you to answer not only where has God been faithful in the past, but where would you like God to be mighty in your present? Said another way, where are things not as they should be? Because I want us to remember that there is a mighty God in our midst. And Christmas isn't just the season of tiredness or cheesy movies. It's a season where a mighty God actually came to earth. And that changes everything. The last thing that I want to say uh, is in that context of uh, when Isaiah calls him mighty God, the, the Hebrew word that he's saying is Gabor. And, um, and it's, I think it's first used in Genesis 10, but one of the times it's first used is to describe a, an amazing, mighty warrior, uh, and his name was Nimrod. True story, look it up. And that's where, I mean, he wasn't a nice guy. And so um, that's where we get the name. So Nimrod was uh, described as Gabor or mighty. And then later on in uh, the book of Joshua, this unbelievable leader, Joshua is described as mighty. And then later on in 2 Samuel, or First Samuel, um, Goliath is described as Gabor. And so I want you to imagine, because you're not a first, uh, not in this room, you're not a 21st century American, you're a 1st century Jew. And you're reading back through Isaiah And I want you to imagine when you get to Isaiah 9, 6, and you see Gabor, and all of a sudden you, steeped in Jewish scriptures, would have been like, oh, Nimrod, Joshua, and and Goliath. I guarantee when you read that word, you you were not expecting a baby. When you would have read Gabor, you would have assumed, oh, I know how this thing's going to play out. Because the problem in the first century with the people surrounding Jesus is that they were not looking for a Messiah like him. They were looking for someone that had the strength of Goliath, the leadership of Joshua, the fighting ability of Nimrod. They weren't looking for a new move of God. They were looking for the same old thing refurbished. And I don't know about you, but when I read Isaiah 9, and when I read different things, I'm like, I don't know how they missed it. How did they miss Jesus? It said right there that he was going to be a baby, and then I shut my Bible, I shut Isaiah 9, and I tell God where things are not as they should be, and I tell him exactly how he should fix them, because I'm kind like that. And then I'm like, oh, I totally see how they missed it because I miss it. Because they were looking for the same thing in the same way. They were not expecting flesh. They were not expecting a baby. They were expecting Gabor. They were expecting mighty in the ways that they had seen. They were not expecting the kind of might that Jesus came with. And if I'm honest, I'm often not looking for a mighty God that's doing a new thing, but I'm looking for a predictable God that's doing the same old thing that i'm comfortable with and so the last thing this morning is what if the new thing doesn't look like the old thing as we're asking mighty god to come in whatever situation that we're in what if it doesn't look like it's looked before because isaiah chapters later in 43 he says behold this is god speaking i'm doing a new thing now it springs forth do you not perceive it i will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert this is the character of God. He said, look, the least likely place for a way is a wilderness. The least likely place for a river is the desert. But I'm doing something that is new and unexpected. And so this season, as we ask mighty God to come in and, and help fix or rearrange the things that are not as they should be, I also don't want us to look for the next old thing. Because my, God might actually be doing a new thing. He might be doing something new in our midst. And I want this community, this family, this church to say, oh man, we're we're down for whatever God wants to do. We'll move, we'll flex, we'll change, we'll do something different. If God's doing it, if God's saying it, we want to be all in for that. And I don't want to lead the kind of community, I don't want to be the kind of person that I sometimes can be where I say, no, no, I know how God's going to show up. And I put him into that box. So last time I'll ask, where are things not as they should be. And what if your mighty but unconventional God ends up doing things differently than you expected? But guys, the exciting thing this morning is that the Messiah that came, the baby that was born, the son that was given, is a mighty God, and there is a mighty God that's actually in our midst. And so um, this morning, I want to invite up my friend, Zach, and this is, uh, he's going to speak for a little bit. Zach is a childhood friend. He's also married to Megan, who was uh, singing and playing keys this morning. And um, here's a couple things about Zach. Zach was the first one, him and his brother, to convince me that house churches were like a viable form of ministry. And uh, because, and I, because I did, I was like, no, I mean, the Sunday gathering is really important. And I still think it is. But about seven or eight years ago, I've told the story. I started a house church at his bothering. And I saw that, oh, we've baptized more people in our apartment than we have um, anywhere else. And so Zach and Megan are both missionaries with an organization that does house churches all over the world, discipleship movements. And so I told Zach what I was going to be preaching on. And I said, would you just share with us a little bit about how you've seen God be mighty all over the world? So this is Zach. If we could welcome him. And he's going to share about Mighty God. (laughs)
1: Awesome. Thank you, Pastor Chris. Uh, it's an honor to be with you guys this morning. And and one thing I love about mighty God or the Gabor is there's no one that has more authority, more power than King Jesus. And so as we're coming here today and week after week after week, we can know that this Gabor, this mighty God, has more authority than every principality, every power, every disease, every fear, every nation, every lie that's empowered in our hearts. We have a very mighty god and and one thing that maybe isn't and i know it's not talked about in our nation is we're living in the fastest growing christian population in recorded history the exception is it's not the united states so that's that's something to think about but i believe god's going to turn that god's going to switch that but globally for the first time in history christianity is outgrowing population growth That's insane, and it's happening through movement approaches, and what I mean by that is happening with everyday people who are equipped with the basics to share their story and God's story. Plumbers, electricians, bus drivers, moms, dads, gardeners, everyday people that know that they serve a mighty God with all authority, and they go and they share their testimony, they share what God is doing in very simple ways everyday ways in their own life and we're seeing this movement happen all over the world. It's not about methods, it's not about the best ministry. It's it's one body, one family, one king serving the mighty God and he is working in our midst. And we are beginning to see this rumbling in the United States as well. But but a couple stories I'll just share uh, briefly, and then you get to the one that God really laid on my heart to share with you today, is just in the last couple years, we've been seeing 16,000 people a year come to faith just in Pakistan from Muslim backgrounds, right? There's, a, there's Christian communities in Pakistan. You can go over there. You can even hold revivals. But if you share with Muslims, you have what's called a fatwa on your head, and you're now legally allowed to be killed. And it's those people are coming to Christ. Because in COVID specifically, as people were hungry, people couldn't eat, people couldn't find water, people couldn't work. It was the Christians going to the Muslims and sharing what they had. It was the Christians going to them and sharing God's story with them. And in the last year with the Afghanistan crisis, we've had our people on the ground in Pakistan and in Afghanistan rescue 50,000 people and evacuate them out of the country. And guess what they're doing along the way while they're on this long walking journey with them? They're sharing the gospel. I've sat with former Al-Qaeda jihadist who was the former right-hand man of Osama bin Laden who's now a Christian because Jesus came to him in a dream and he left jihad and they chased him down. They split his head open with an ax and he, he, he was healed from that, prayed for them, started leading people to Jesus and he started now 52 churches in their neighborhood. So they, they can't do church like this over here. It would get bombed. It would be absolutely tarnished. And so like we're doing the same thing over here that they're doing over there. I have a friend in India who he went to this Hindu village and he was surrounded by them. They say it hasn't rained here in two years and we don't believe in your God. But if you pray to your God and you make it rain, we won't kill you. He prayed and thunderclap. It started raining. They tore down their Hindu temple, and they started the first church in that community. We serve a mighty God. It's not powerful people. It's powerful God. All authority and dominion and power belong to his name, the name above names. But the story I want to share with you, the brief story, um, a Hindu gal, Indian, and just for privacy, I'll call her name Amanda. Amanda. Amanda was full-on into Hinduism, but not only that, she was full-on to the world. She had every possible open door you can think of, from immorality to drunkenness to drugs to bad relationships. She opened up everything, and she got absolutely tormented by hundreds and hundreds of evil spirits. Didn't know a Christian, and she was all alone, tormented by these spirits. And they would just haunt her, speak to her, lie to her, scream at her. All day long. That led her to almost insanity. She wanted to take her life. She got deeper and deeper and deeper into the bondage and the lies that kept her trapped and made those voices all the more louder. She would go to people saying, how can I find help? They say, hey, go to this witch doctor over here. She would go to the witch doctor, she would, and it didn't help, and she lost all of her money to them. And then they say, you know what? You need to go to sacred holy ground. And so she even went and found a church and stood outside the church. But the spirit still tormented her even there. Because we know it's not the building that has the power. It's the Lord. And where does the Lord live? Where is his temple? I'm looking at about 200 temples right now. That carry his authority, the kingdom of God from within. And so finally in the last desperation she met someone and said, Hey, I know someone that knows this guy named Jesus. Maybe he can help you. And this was her response. She said, I don't need help from a dead guy. Why would I need help? The only thing I know about him is he died, he's dead. But she was so desperate, she came anyway. And this guy, he prayed for her. And immediately, one by one, these spirits started coming out. Crying, screaming, they silenced them, kicked them out. And she got full restoration, full healing. But here's the coolest part, as she was completely delivered, gave her life to the Lord, repented of all those things, here's what this man told her to do. Go and share this story with your daughter. She comes to faith. She baptizes her in the bathtub. Go share this story with your mom. She comes to faith, renounces Hinduism and all the lies, and she is baptized in the bathtub. And now she's going to the village and the houses around her, leading people to Jesus even to this day. This, this, this lady's my friend. This is a firsthand account. This is someone that I know personally who's been in my home. And, and, and there's a twist to the story. Because it's easy to think, man, God's doing these amazing things over here. But guys, I mentioned that she was a Hindu and Indian. But what I didn't mention to you is she lives in Tampa in the inner city similar to Cincinnati. It's easy to think, oh, God's doing marvelous things over here. Guys, she's living in an urban American context, tormented by evil spirits. Do you think that there's people in one block of here that is tormented, and they're waiting for one son and daughter who knows who they are to go to them and say, we serve a mighty God? Guys, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about our strengths. It's about a mighty God that we serve. When we call on his name, he's the only one who answers. He's the only one who answers. And so I want to share with you and and just commend you through Scripture, through Paul, when Paul was rebuked. Because, guys, in our culture, we don't like to be rebuked. We don't like to be told that we're wrong. But guess what? It's in Jesus' kindness. That he rebukes. Why? Because if he doesn't, we're already condemned and judged in our sins. But if we listen to this kindness, we have freedom, we have liberation, we have hope, we have peace. And he says to Paul, He says, I've appeared to you for this purpose. And this is why he's appearing to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant. Here, it's really simple to be a witness of the things you've seen and the things that you've heard. He goes on to say, and I'm going to send them to you, I'm going to send you to them, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. It's real simple. It's real simple. God has appeared to you. He's, he's broken the chains in your life to simply share your story and God's story so you can turn people from the darkness, the bondage, the lies, the principalities that actually hate you and want to kill you, want to destroy you. And then you've got the power of God who wants to save you, deliver you, redeem you, liberate you, give you peace to send you out into this world and say, be my representatives. That's what he's calling you to, go, to do. And guess who's with you? Mighty God. He is with you, and he is strong, and he is able, and he's unintimidated by every power and force that props itself up against him. He's not afraid, and he is stronger than those forces. And so we serve a mighty God whose name is above every name. He is worthy to be praised. All honor and wonder and glory and power and dominion and beauty and blessing. He is the name above names. He is the great resurrection. He's mighty to save. And, and God put on my heart a year ago the song that Megan is about to sing. And it simply was this bridge. It was this, these words that said, you are my motive. You are my treasure. And just like Isaiah 9, it then says, Christ be exalted, your kingdom forever, the government that has no end. He's establishing something new, and he's able to do it, and he's a mighty God. So would you sing this song with us called Long Live the King, where we are crying out in a generation that says there is no God. Your God is weak. Your God is wrong. Your your God judges people. Like, yes, he actually does, and he's coming, and he wants to bring righteousness. Long live the king, our treasure, our hope, the name above names.